So I'm super excited about this. As you might imagine, Kara and I know each other prior to our partnership with City at, with Bionic. So this is sort of a, a hilarious rendezvous for me. And I want to start with your tattoo, your new tattoo. Can you tell us about that? Because <coughs> I see it's. <laughs> I didn't know your. Is that was what we're no, using our questions? No, that was not the question. No, for those of you who care, I was actually in Dubai last week at uh, the Seamless Payments Conf Conference and um, had the opportunity to you know get to know a lot of what was happening over in Middle East, which was. It was profound in a lot of ways, um, but decided that instead of uh, maybe drinking or doing other things before I caught on my plane, I was going to kind of immerse myself in the culture. That's so I got a little henna. Cam camel raisin looks great. All right, so you're the global chief product officer for City, and uh, you do all things new and disruptive. So talk about a little bit about City and uh, your mission and how you're creating new things and new growth. So City Fintech was established about 18 months ago. It was my first day um, at City, And in doing so, it was built on a mission that really had three vectors. So one was, how do we build business agility to transform the way that we work? The second was, is what's the right path in putting digital solutions into the market to set us up for growth, being a 200-year-old company? Um, there are a lot of lots of inertia that was in the way of us wanting to achieve our aspirations, and then the third aspect of City FinTech was really about identifying the new vectors of growth and understanding what that escape velocity is all about. And Stephen Bird, who's the CEO of, of Global, um, the Consumer Bank, came over from Asia, and when he took his new post, he had recognized that what he saw happening in a the Asian markets were at such a pace, and we were not catching up. And that there are a couple ways in which he could take this path forward. One, he could make a declarative statement from the top on down that we are going to transform, we're going to be, you know, kind of digital of the future. Um, the second one is, you know, some like Cap One and others have done, which is go through a massive yeah. acquisition strategy where you have a whole host of challenges, although can be successful of the integration and cultures. Um, and the third is what he did is what he said, look, I'm going to take a very small group of people internally. I'm going to append new talent to that group. We're going to focus on one problem, on one customer segment, in one market, and we're going to do something that we have never done before, and that was to put a new experience and a new set of features in the market in probably, I don't know, a fourth of the time that City would have done it in the past, and we did. So you're, you're a startup girl. You came, ran a large swath of product at PayPal. And when you think about the DNA of a valley-based company coming to a larger enterprise that's trying to restore that or bring that valley sort of startup lean capability in, like what are the things you think you sort of brought from PayPal into City, and what did you leave behind? Like what are those? What are the aspects of that skill that you had in that company that you think were valuable in sort of launching the lean movement, launching the startup movement inside of City? That's a hard one. I mean, because I made some, a lot of mistakes as well. So you know, some of this stuff is stuff you've probably heard in the past. I mean, being able to can constantly challenge status quo. I mean, you talk a lot about risks in organization, take a risk, fail fast. A lot of it's words. I think actually acting that out is very, very difficult to do. And one of the things that myself and others had to do is to be okay putting ourselves out in front and demonstrating that you have to take a leap of faith. And it, whether it's an idea, whether it's a new technology, whether it's standing up for what you believe in, that's something that from, I think, something we do in the Valley all the time is we have, you know, confrontation that is very constructive. And 
a large institution in New York where people are always looking at kind of how do they stack up against other people, what is their success in the past, what's their incentive structure. It was, it, it was hard, but it was something that has now become part of our DNA within City Fintech, and the great part of it is that while we won't claim that we're transforming the entire bank, the reality is is that change starts small, and it's kind of the tsunami effect, right? I mean, there's just cascades and cascades of change that happen as people recognize it's easier to work this way, it's a lot more fun to work this way, and you have greater results. What I left behind was I'm a pretty impatient person. Really? Really. Really, David. Yeah, really, Carrie. Yeah. Um, and in the Valley, and I don't want to say in the Valley versus in New York, yeah. I mean, like, the world is different regardless of where you go. You have to be impatient because every day I would wake up and we had an office on um, 6th and 18th. By the time I left PayPal, I started the New York-based office. And I would take the subway and I would walk to work and all around me was commerce and people who were changing kind of the way people pay and the way that payment shows up in their lives. And I would pass merchants who would say, yeah, I got a question, my report's not working. And so the sense of constant urgency of like you gotta keep up and you gotta make the right decisions and you have to have conviction to what you believe was critical. You have to be really, really patient, you know, when you're trying to transform a large enterprise and institution because it's not just about the first year. The first year actually is probably easier than most because you've got this remit from the top of there's X amount of money, you know, kind of bound yourself to the problem statement. We suspended any of the metrics of the past, like top line, bottom line. It was all about what does the customer want. We didn't have those those metrics of success that the company had governed themselves by for 200 years. And I wanted to do a whole lot more. And there was a point in time where I sat down with our CEO and I said to him, we went through every single feature. And he said to me, tell me in customer language, what are you gonna do? I'm like, as a city customer, I will. I mean, I had to walk the list. And I turned around and I said, you, you brought me in here to build the bank of the future. Like, this is not the bank these of the future. Are, this are, is the bank of today. This is the bank of today. Yeah. And so patience has been critical. So, um, you know, lean is, a, is an important movement in discovering new things that break biases and sort of allow um, leaders and teams to stay into sort of un unknowable areas for a long time or non-consensus areas. Uh, having worked with uh, large companies for the last three or four years, there is this pull, this, this like tractor beam into the mindset of, um, we need to plan linearly. How have you, um, and this is not a leading question, although it could be, but like how do you think about um, changing the mindset mechanics so that lean as a skill and these experiments are respected such that they will continue to do them? It's a hard thing when it isn't a thorough answer, when it's a unknowable answer, even though you're making progress. Yeah, I think one of my biggest challenges has been this search for perfection yep. in every idea that you tend to have with large enterprises. And I've deduced that to, you know, over the years in large companies, and I'll even say, you know, PayPal started to hit some of those moments as well, which is you think you're only gonna have one time to actually get it right and to put it in market. Yeah. And therefore you do this extensive planning and you wanna account for all permutations of what could go wrong. And when you move to this lean mindset, you allow yourself to accept imperfection. You allow yourself to plan for the bit that you know and to discover the things that you don't know. And so we've used a couple different tactics with this. One is when we first started, we were interviewing thousands of customers from day one. And it was really to kind of introduce this. You don't talk about being customer centric, like you have to walk in their shoes. You really have to have the empathy. 
But it didn't stop and start there, which was what a lot of people thought, is that we would do this exercise in November, and then when we released the following you know, year, that all that would have maintained true. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that the world changes so quickly, and all of that doesn't maintain That's true, awesome. right? And so we introduced the ability where we're talking to customers every two weeks. I mean, we're out there, and we have new concepts, new products. Um, it's a requirement for my product organization to sit down with the design team, do the briefing, the research, sit down with the customers, look at kind of what's statistically significant. And based on that feedback, which I'll sit down and review with them the following week, they start to iterate on that. And so this notion of you can't be linear, you have to figure out how to make incremental steps for success, has been a cultural shift for us. Yeah, you've also, I mean, one of the, the more novel things that you've done besides just obviously increasing the, like, the learning velocity and the release velocity and using, actually trusting good enough answers. Ideas becoming, like classic startups, become less broken over time. You've also like leveraged partnerships and partnerships in the form of experiments. Can you talk about the sort of mindset and the sort of in investment or experiment philosophy around partners and how it affects you know, your ultimate strategy around growth? So my belief is that when you become a large enterprise and you've done a lot of good things right and you really haven't had a need for change except for maybe the 2008 market crash, mm, you think you got all the answers. And the reality is, is with startups and others is they know they don't have all the answers right. and there needs to be a quicker path towards delivery and to kind of market testing and launching. And so as part of that, we've had to shift our thinking that we aren't going to build everything. We don't know. So we've kind of had this culture of we'll build everything. We have the ideas. We have the circle for competency where we flipped it. And we said, you know, the first question we have to be asking ourselves when we understand the requirements of our customers is do we partner? Like who are, who are people who are doing that better than us out there? Mm -hmm. And then it's a do we buy? And then it's a do we build? And part of that is because the cost of partnership has gone down tremendously, particularly when you start to look at APIs yep. and microservices and how we're all building, particularly with AWS and, and, and Azure and every other, other, other kind of in-cloud service offering. And so partnerships are actually critical for us. We had, at, towards the end of last year, as we were trying to tell the narrative in the traditional form that, hey, here's what we want to do next year. Here's what it looks like. Here's the perfecting the PowerPoint. I said, screw it. Like, I can't do more PowerPoint. Like, we're just going to build this thing. And so, you know, we got a couple partners who are game. They knew that they wouldn't be signing a contract and had an idea, had like five different use cases and through kind of APIs, et cetera, we built it and we demoed that for talking about our strategy yeah. for 2017. So partnerships is actually cr is critical. The problem is, is that the path to partnering is just as difficult as anything yeah. else because it Super tends to painful. be a decision and then a nine-month process to get a contract signed. And you guys signed. love your partners, like, I always joke, I say, like, Lenny of Mice and Men, where you, like, just squeeze them to death and break their necks, and it's always awesome. It's not very nice. Yeah, I know. But, like, yeah, as a startup, like, you, you do partnership with a big company, and you're like, thank you for killing me. Like, this they is don't awesome. You know, that was one of my biggest learnings, is we'd, yes. I meet with these companies and these CEOs, I'm like, oh, I got this idea, I'd love you to, love you to partner with us, and they're like, I really don't want to do business with you. Like, I don't want that six-digit check, because it's such a pain in the ass, excuse my language, yeah. to partner with you guys, and so, We've had to really pivot, and part of us doing that is demonstrating how do we do things differently. So last year we launched um, our open banking initiative, which was our developer hub, where we have over 100 different APIs, um, seven API bundle services. That was really part of our opening up the world to say we want to do things different. And now we're innovating with entrepreneurs around the world, and they're coming up with ideas that we never could have. Yeah, that's cool. So um, we're all in an 
arms race for talent, right? And so uh, part of what we've discovered at City and our partnership is um, there actually is people who can build inside these large companies. They may be hiding out or they're, you know, they're usually people who have like black marks on their resume because or their CV because they tell the truth at the, at the, at the expense of their own, you know, compensation sometimes. When, but it, when you do it right, you put a, it's sort of like putting 100 kids in art class. You can tell in like five minutes who can draw. They're your creators. So talk about like your creators. Like how are you finding them? How are you developing them? How are you incentivizing them? You know, inside out, outside in. Like this is a, a critical, critical bet you're making on talent. How are you going after that? When we, <coughs> this has been a tough one for me on a whole host of levels because I think talent and culture are probably the biggest differentiators for driving change in a large organization. And that is defined by leadership and leadership at the top and role modeling. I mean, words only take you so far. And the talent, kind of the war on talent has been fascinating because when we started, it was seeded with the best of the best of city and just tremendous people, but some who had never been through this before. And so that balancing act of how do I bring net new talent in that will complement the institutional knowledge that we have? How do you bring out the best of people who, to your point, there's incredible people in this large corporation who have been banging their heads up against the wall for five years trying to build what I came in in five days and said that we had to build, right? And so how do I honor that and give them the opportunity to realize that vision versus somebody net new? And, and so one has been about how do we respect the talent from within and seeking to really understand what they're capable of for the future to be future compatible versus looking back and what their job was. The second one is really looking at recruiting. So I knew that we knew mm -hmm. that if we were to go through the same process that I had gone through to join City, which literally was a nine-month process from the first recruiting call to the negotiations to the interviewing, that wasn't going to work to get the talent we needed. So we totally reinvented the HR recruiting process where we ended up bringing in 12 selected people, and we've done this three times. They took a day off work, that was it. And our commitment to them was from coming to see us where they would pitch a case study, they would sit down with people they hadn't worked before, they would do round tables um, to get to know others. They'd get an offer in hand in 48 hours. And we did it, yeah. and we did it. And I think that they started to recommend to their friends through other channels to come work at City. And for me, that was this huge indication that we were starting to drive the change that we thought was possible. Yeah, A players hire A players for sure. It's the yeah, they do. They do. And talent, I mean, other part is just talent is totally fatal. I mean, you get, you get the you hire the wrong person in the wrong job, particularly in new areas, and then by the time you discover that, you get the wrong, and you let them go, and you have to hire again, you've lost a year, which means in a startup world, you're out of money and you're dead. So um, you, you've taken on, I think, as a mentality in the company that these ideas aren't projects, they're startups, so they can, they can go to die. Startups are solution, solutions to problems in the same way that a project is, but the mentality of a startup and embedding it in a large company is sort of against sort of the project culture of the larger, big to bigger machine. So, but it's vital to get to the answer, to get to the truth, because if they fail in validating something, it should die. So how have you dealt with like embedding the startup mentality in the team so that urgency and that critical thinking and that live, die, live, die mindset exists? How do you drive the team to get to truth? <coughs> so when we started our transformation agenda, so I talked a little bit about City FinTech, there was another effort that was going in parallel, which uh, was sponsored by the Ventures organization. And this was actually in partnership uh, with Bionic. And it was really looking at how do you identify the new growth opportunities? And part of it was about education mm -hmm. of what is that growth equation. 
and not just the education for our senior executives of how they needed to show up when talking to some of their staff of suspending judgment on this won't work and worrying about the money versus worrying about the problem you had to solve. The other aspect of it was is how do we take these ideas and the people who are seated deep within the organization and allow them the opportunity to tell the narrative of what they believe is possible. And so we started what we call these growth boards, which you know the talented people after X amount of time of investigating the customer problem and looking at potential solutions gets to stand up in front of um, a number of people and, and kind of tell their story. And in doing that, what it's done is it's forced us to use the same taxonomy and to also challenge them to say, would you leave the company for this idea? Yeah, I was gonna mention that. Yeah, yeah and there are people who have said yes, and those are people we don't wanna leave. And so it's really forced us now to think about, well, how do we go to that next level, which is not just about inspiration, ideation, it's also about implementation. So we talk a lot about fail fast. I'm a big, like, you gotta fail cheaply. And so I welcome, and we still have yet to point those ideas, but we've had a lot of things that we've killed yeah. as part of this process. And we've celebrated that, and it's, you know, you can talk more about it, people say it than do it, because I think there's a lot of people who are concerned about their, their job. But at the end of the day, like, I can't wait to kill something that I built last year, yeah. and I've got my eye on something, and I just don't want to spend any more money because I don't want good money to go yeah. after bad money. So, you know, be on the lookout for that one. I remember a couple of those meetings where the, the, the it's it's almost startling to the leadership to see the level of conviction that these entrepreneurs have inside the company, because there's, there's sort of like a larger context, which is they're developing their careers, but when they actually say, "Yeah, I would bet my life on this," yeah. and I'm serious the whole level of stakes goes up and the critical thinking goes up and the commitment goes up and that's a very impor important lever. Well, uh, David, I just wanna add to that because I do think that sometimes we put people in roles that they're not passionate about and these ideas- As obsessed, right? Yeah, these ideas are coming from individuals who have lived it, you know, who have mm -hmm. an experience to tell. The secrets. Who have validated it, you know, with the masses, and like they're obsessed with getting this right because it's going to make their their yeah. life easier and therefore help others. And it's hard to say no to that sometimes. And so you're being forced as an executive leadership team to find answers to help them advance because the challenges and barriers that we have today with putting things into the market and testing them, at least in the financial sector, are very different than in the non-financial sector. But those are things we still need to solve. Yeah. All right, what my, I have two Zinger questions for you, so I'll drop the first one. So what we, one of the things that we had the good fortune working with some amazing CEOs and their chief innovation officers and product officers, et cetera. And I would say by and large, I mean the gross majority, I mean probably what, 75%, they're all women. So why, why is it that uh, women lead change? Why, is, why are the chief disruptive officers, the innovation officers probably women in the companies? What is, what is the, why is that true across almost all of our partners so as a disruptor? So before I answer that, because I'm just going to buy myself some time <laughs> to answer that question. No, um, I think so we, this is an important thing. No, I, mean, I actually think it is. Someone, someone said to me a couple weeks ago, interestingly enough, there, there's an organization that's recruiting for board positions, and they were talking about the decline in women leadership at the C-level. So we're worse off now than we were four years ago when Cheryl published her Lean yep. In book. Um, and, and let me just juxtapose this with, so they were saying that 40% of the time women are selected for these kind of C-level positions. 70% of the time when you're leading change, particularly digital change, women are selected yep. for those positions. And so you start to ask yourself why. And what 
I have concluded, this is just an opinion of one, having thought about this, is that the world is changing so drastically that linear thinking and just pragmatic analytical thinking is not enough. Like being able to intuitively connect the dots, have multiple things happen at once, you know, being able to quickly empathize and read, like that's naturally been a, just a skill set that women tend to have. And so if you just ask yourself, like the world of I have a project, I'm going to deliver that project and it's going to go from A to Z no longer exists. Like you constantly have to be juggling and, and being agile to how you look at issues, how you look at dynamics in the market, how you look at leadership, you look at talent. And those, those things that have come naturally for women over the course of time. Um, so that's a short answer. Yeah, I, I think you're narrowing, this is having asked this question now one, one other time on a panel with two CMOs who are both women. They both talked very similarly about like the ability to learn and unlearn, yeah. holding um, decisiveness carefully, right? And not overvalued or undervalued, but finding the ability to learn and unlearn so you're constantly in a state of being open to the right answer. Well as and and to being right. I, ta I talk a lot about vulnerability and the importance of that. Yeah. And, um, and I'm not going to make you cry. No, so please don't. Don't um, make me cry, please. No, but vulnerability yeah. in the sense of, and I'll tell you a funny story, is so I'm a big believer of flat hierarchy, which yep. again is in contrast to, I think, large enterprises of the past. And so that requires you to you know, zoom out and zoom in, think strategically, get your hands dirty. And I am a big believer that people should give direct feedback. I don't want to hear it from three or four different people. And I had a meeting that I was having weekly, and this gentleman, he was relatively young, I walked in a little bit late, <coughs> and the whole room shut down. And I said, what is going on? And of course, no one wants to say anything. I'm like, no, really? And someone turns around and said, so-and-so said this meeting is worthless, and we shouldn't have it. You know, and I thought to myself, like, those that have been around the company for a while were in shock that someone would be so disrespectful um, to their senior. I welcomed it. I mean, I actually thought it, he was right. And what I said to him is, the meeting stinks because you guys are ill-prepared. So if you come prepared, then I won't have the meeting anymore. But again, it was this example of like to learn and to unlearn and to be vulnerable to those types yeah. of things. If you're going to hire strong people, you need to, be able to take and give strong feedback. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So you're uh, in your going into your third year or second, second year. Excuse me. Second and uh, I do know that, uh, by the way. <laughs> so there, you described earlier about this, the first year, which is everyone's excited about it, and then the second year is like, where are the results? And it's like, the, as we talked about earlier, it's like this escape velocity. It's that escape velocity in the second. Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, is this to keep, like, keep the mic to your face? Um, as opposed to like, be quiet, which is more at my office. Um, so in the second year, there's this escape velocity problem, which is they, it's very hard to get out of the second year successfully because you're back in the you know, metric business. You know, where is the money? Where is the results? Where is the impact? And it's too soon. It's too early. We're still in the signals phase. So how are you getting to, through the escape velocity chapter and into growth? So I, just to emphasize on this, the second year has been a lot harder. It really, really has. The first year, you have excitement, you have adrenaline, you have money, you've got an idea, you don't have those bounded contexts. You move in the second year, and people are saying, okay, what's the return? Mm -hmm. And you want more money to do what? What are those proof points? And so how do you get through that 
what I have experienced is picking the two or three things that you actually can really quantify early on, buying time to quantify the things that will take a lot longer. So when I think of like primary metrics versus secondary or tertiary metrics, you know, it changes. So I'll give you an example. So there was um, one of the things that we launched was the ability to enroll into a different segment within our app digitally. And we've already seen five times more than what we had expected when we first launched it. Now, someone could say, well, what does that mean from a revenue perspective? Where does that need to go? Well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna calculate that yet. But what we see is the targets of what we developed is five times more than we anticipated. Oh, and by the way, something that took us 10 sprints now takes us one sprint to deliver because we're looking at reuse based on the architecture. Like, that is a meaningful game because we can end up seeing cost avoidance where, where when we implement a new partner or a new idea, there's a 95% reduction in how long that takes mm -hmm. from idea to implementation. Like, those things are tangible, David. And so even though it's not the traditional ones, those are the things that allow us to see more escape velocity than, so we're ready for those big, big ideas that are on the, yeah. on the horizon. This is, I'll, I'll temper my second zinger question, which is when you think about going into your third year, like if you were sitting around the table with your leadership team and you said, if you had a, this is Peter Thiel's favorite question, which is what's something you believe about the future that no one else would believe? Like about the future of FinTech, the future of city to some extent. Like, where are we going that is sort of unbelievable? So, so I'll, I'll share something that I think near term and then something longer term. So when, I, when we first started at City, the investment in fintechs in general were at an all-time high. We're looking at $12, 15000000000 billion annually. You're starting to see a slight dip in that decline. And there's a couple of reasons. One is the market's starting to get saturated, so a lot of that investment was in the payment sector within fintech versus others. Secondly is you start to think about scale. And there's only so much you can do to scale if you don't have the capital structure, you don't have the infrastructure, you don't have the regulatory you know, relationships, those types of things. And so I think where there was this push against banks and large traditional financial institutions, a lot of these startups are starting to see that the partnerships is absolutely critical on yeah. both sides. And so. I don't think people would have believed that. I mean, when I was in Dubai, we had TransferWise up on stage that, you know, you're familiar with TransferWise, like, marketing tactics? Yeah, so, um, and he was like, we got to partner with banks. And I thought to myself, Steve, do you remember those marketing oh yeah, tactics you took two years ago? And as, so as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you know, whose pants are down? So, like, the numbers okay. are the numbers. <laughs> so, like, yeah. the reality is the reality. The Same reality problem. is the reality. And so I think that is a shift that people didn't expect long term. I do believe banking and financial the management of someone's financial services will show up in every aspect of their life that you believe. And that is gonna require passive authentication. That is gonna require autonomous funding instrument selection. That's gonna acquire different ways in which you authorize money movement, you know, between different accounts or to other accounts. And, and so this notion of while I'm doing something, I can do something else with a voice command or other types of interaction models and modalities, I think is a huge reality. The, when we think about voice banking now, I think there's a lot of naysayers, but I tend to look at the trends of how consumers are engaging with screenless technologies and where will that go. And that plus, I think, passive authentication, we're gonna walk around a world where these things are gonna happen behind the scenes and become invisible and we never would have imagined it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, before we go to questions, which is gonna happen in about one second, we're actually pretty close on time. Um, I would just want to share that, you know, City is, and we do this at scale now with a bunch of our partners, ha is uh, learning at a velocity uh, that I think is maybe new to the culture, but definitely uh, 
far ahead of a lot of people we work with. Like, it is really remarkable to see just the confidence and speed in which um, uh, you're going. And also the openness to learning. As Eric always says, whoever learns the fastest wins. Like, there's a level of learning velocity that now exists and openness to it that sort of breaks the addiction of being right and leads to question-driven leadership. And uh, that has a large part to do with people like yourself who've come in and sort of you know, broken the glass. So well done. Um, we'll go to questions. We have this app, which I'm, I guess I'm supposed to share, Slideo.io, yes? It sounds like a startup. It has like EO in it. It must be a startup, but yes. Good, Slideo, yeah. Absolutely, let's first give a hand. Thank you so oh, much, that was, that was great. We're gonna keep asking you guys questions. Um, and those questions are powered by you, and I'm just gonna be your conduit up here. You know, Kira, you talked a little bit about going to Dubai, talking about some of these ideas that you're tattoos. seeing. Tattoos. Tattoos, absolutely. But also some of the ideas that you're seeing coming around the world that you would have never thought of yourself. And one of our questions really has to do with that. You know, so much of the large portions of your digital products um, are produced offshore by the partners you alluded to earlier. So how do you kind of take that ownership um, of innovation as you're moving forward? Um, well, I'll challenge that statement that so much of what we develop is offshore. I mean, when we started this lean approach and moving to an agile methodology, we did adopt co-location. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's our internal engineers or our partner engineers, like they are within arm's length of us right now. And, and so I, I'll answer it that way, which you know, I think don't, don't assume that everything is just offshore. And also add to that that um, in a previous world, we had learned that offshoring the wrong things was creating more angst, um, lower NPS, um, and more friction with our employees than actually bringing it in-house. So the cost of paying salaries here was much more effective than trying to offshore them. I, I, I will say, though, um, the most important thing that we have learned, I have learned, having been in global roles, is actually getting out into the markets outside of the US. I think that far too often, as a US citizen and a native, we're not learning from what's happening in other areas around the world that are so much more progressive than we are, whether it's in financial services, it's payments, and it's commerce, it's communication tactics. Yeah. And that is, you know, we talk, we laugh a little bit about Dubai, but I found it fascinating because they have a national digital identity system there, just like Adar and India and others, and the role of government and the role of a digitizing identity actually has been a massive catalyst to accelerating kind of their path into this ubiquitous digital society, and you know, that's something that the U.S. hasn't quite kind of glummed onto yet. And, and the U.S. does not have a monopoly on innovation. I mean, this is, when you're sitting at global scale with these companies, you can see this. Um, it's happening, it is happening, absolutely being adopted, happening much uh, faster into bigger, deeper problems outside the U.S. than is inside the U.S. Blockchain and in, in, in law and legal and contracts and other places is far ahead of where we're gonna be. Device architecture and identity, like as you, as you pointed out, is moving just at a pace that m outstrips our imagination on what the need is. And uh, we have to be open to those answers. And I think you also have to be open to testing some of these ideas in different markets, yeah. you know, where you've got less risk, it's not a majority of your business, um, ample, ample examples, yeah. I mean, for those who are interested afterwards that I could give. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Um, you bring up David and Kerry. Specifically, though, you know, when you're talking within the American cultural context, um, people are really curious to know, how do you kind of use the lean startup methodology in a very regulated industry, particularly in the wake of a 2008, right? So can you talk through just kind of maybe the steps you take and how you're thinking about Obviously, you need to be innovative, you need to break things fast, et cetera, but navigating those very real rules that are there for a reason. Um, so 
one is about you, you break glass on the right things and not the wrong things. And particularly when you're in a regulated financial sector, I mean, you're messing with people's money. I mean, this is their livelihood. Absolutely. And so I think you gotta be really, really thoughtful about that. And it's not this, I mean, this is the whole notion of lean, right? It's not a one so answer fits all. It's like multiple different shades of gray that solve for different problems. And so you know, one is, is picking the right things that you break glass on. The second one is this comes into internal partnerships. So we have re-examined what our governance and controls process is within um, our company. And one of the things that we did is we actually created a governing body that represented the umpteen number of committees that ensure that we are acting in the best interest of our customers at all time and protecting their financial assets. And they sit on our floor. We have office hours with them twice a week. My product team goes in, talks about the strategy one week, actually walks the user stories the next week. They start to poke holes in things much early on. So the past, it, to your point about linear thinking, you build this thing, you make a set of assumptions, and then you go to the controls committees and you realize like you got it all wrong. You can't bring them along. You can't bring them along. They don't understand it. They're incented by saying no versus saying yes. And so that's been a big learning for us as well. And even to the point where, you know, I'm a big believer we should partner more with the government and the OCC because they recognize the world has changed and they're getting outpaced and they want to learn as well. And well, what would that look like under this current administration? I'm curious. So no, no judgment, no political. So I'm just, I'm without, really curious. Without answering that question directly, as opposed to like, and maybe that's an off mic answer, but. Um, there are marketplaces where ha who, uh, who have to deal with similar regulation, but certainly not the um, level of regulation you have. I mean, you are the most regulated industry in the world right now, and there are others. But in the energy space, uh, in the other places that we play, where there is real regulation that you can't really launch things without approval from someone who doesn't even understand a business or customer need. Um, to Carrie's point, like engaging early with them, they're actually, they're, they're, they have their own competitive commercial interest in making you successful. They just want to be late in, in knowing what it is. So we have gone out and experimented and had them understand, as regulators, the problem we're solving for and why it's a good thing to solve for the customers and how we're, selling, we're solving for it and how we're limiting liability and limiting risk. And limit. So once they understand that, this lean is an incredibly powerful tool to engage with a regulatory mindset who's not at war with you. So how do you actually get them shoulder to shoulder solving a customer problem as opposed to across the table? Well, this is a great tool for that because they're lowering the risk. It, it, it is. It's a fabulous tool for it. And I, and I will also say that as we started to investigate kind of what were the barriers to our success for getting things into market, there were two major things that made a difference. One is we started to think about is it opinion, is it policy, is it law? And what we found that there were a lot of things internally that were opinion. And there are a lot of things internally that were historically based on things that had been established but never challenged as everything else had challenged. So that was one. The second thing that we started to look at is how do we bring the outside in even to yeah. these controlling bodies? So when we decided to launch ability to open up a self-directed trading account via the mobile app, they wanted to introduce a gesture-based signature on the mobile, mobile device and it would have added like six times more friction to the consumer experience, which that means we'd had drop off and churn, et cetera. We brought the outside in and said, these startups of the world that are doing this, they're, they're governed by the same thing within kind of yeah. the, the brokerage community, but they're doing it differently. So we brought that in and we were able to challenge things and through partnerships, like we actually, we actually changed it. Yeah. I, I love that, the policy opinion are law. law. Yeah, no, that's a really great kind of framework to think about. 
to take back to your own companies. You know, people are also really curious about just, you, you kind of touched on this in your last example, but just to drill down on one of the um, user problem that you've you utilized in the 18 months at City and you've utilized and improved upon in that time um, that was a FinTech problem and you solved it either with a partnership or internally. Yeah, um, gosh, well, there were tons of them. Um, so, I, you know, I think that w when we went did a lot of customer listening um, and we kind of took the, the customer listening post forward and we did start with wanting to build this bank of the future, the reality was is our customers were saying, like, just service our basic needs today. Mm. Yeah. So a good example is money movement. Mm. I mean, money movement, being able to move money from one account to another or to somebody even outside of the institution, is part of our everyday lives. And there's been a lot of disruption in P2P providers are, that have made it easier. And what we found is that the customers actually trusted the institution to hold their money and to move their money, but it was so painful for them to do it. And it was around access to the directory, it was around instant settlement, it was, I mean, there were these basic, basic things. And so we sat down and we had to explain more broadly that what existed today, what our customers are asking for was not what we were offering them. And so how, how do we solve for that? I mean, that's one of many. I mean, there were some problem statements we solved that were a little bit more self-serving, I think, but you have to keep that in check constantly, yeah. that are you doing it internally to meet a need versus externally. A lot of the, a lot of the and this is not uh, entirely true about all of our partners, but they often, a lot of the, the initial hypotheses are about themselves. We gotta fix this. And, and to your point about the customers, when you actually go in and discover what you wa they want to solve for you in a trust relationship, it's often the basics. So like you, while we think about how are we taking a future that's seven to 10 years and moving it forward, which you can do in your large company, a lot of times it's just like solve these fundamental pains, the basically the promise of this trust you're building with whether it be money or like what I'm eating, my food, et cetera. So uh, sometimes this, the hardest answers are simple. Not what any executive leader wants to hear, right. including myself. Right. I want something a little bit more aspirational, That's a little really bit more exciting, really a little bit game changing. Yeah. Yeah. Really simple isn't yeah. sexy, is what you're yeah. saying. No, <laughs> so I'm curious then, you know, um, what then are you doing to incentivize those entrepreneurs that you're finding within the companies? Like, what is keeping them motivated when, you know, the pace is slow and they could go out and go do it on their own? Um, so we just actually had a pulse survey and there was a large percentage of people that were surveyed that said we were moving fast, mm -hmm. which I found fascinating because I don't think we're moving fast enough. <laughs> and so I think those, you know, again, you start to look at the divide of what people have experienced in the past versus what they've experienced, you know, there at the company. And I just, I offer that because I think there's this element of constantly raising the bar. Yeah. And what we have found, and again, this sounds so simple, but I was just reading something um, in the CEO Fortune uh, publication around, you know, passion and purpose actually does matter more than profits and paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's a piece of it because the people we have hired, you know, are committed to how do you think about financial inclusion more broadly around the world? How do you change something that touches everybody's lives and make it easier for them to live and to have access and to achieve their aspirations? And that has been absolutely core, but that also comes with you know, people wanting promotion. You know, so we've had to relook at kind of what's the job family matrix relative to what it used to be versus what it is now. Um, how do you incent them differently? Typically, at least in our sector, it's on an annual basis. Mike came from the Valley where it was spot bonuses. If someone did a great job, I could give them $10,000 to keep them going if that's what motivated them. And so that aspect of how we keep, I think the urgency and the excitement is also changing. 
I'll just share one other lens on this, which is that happens when you have a CEO who values new growth. And so, like, um, they, for a lot of good reasons and a lot of, you know, unintended, not bad consequences, the quarterly, quarterly capitalism model highly overweights, obviously, immediacy in those returns. You can put a dollar in the big machine and get fractional pennies out of it on a very measured basis because it's existed for 50 years. And so that big to bigger incremental engine does its job of going incrementally slow, but it's risk averse, low variation, low risk, et cetera. But you know what you're going to get from it. But that value of that, you pay a lot of money to get a lot of pennies at scale. But once you get a CEO who understands that new to big skill, that zero to 50, that like zygote to five-year-old, 10-year-old ugly teenager job, raising those kids, is actually equally valuable because they value it on the top line. It's not a bottom line, you know, why do I care about this $50 million company? That $50 million company is worth $500 million to me. Because if I get it to 50, because I can now raise these kids, I can take 50 to 500 because I have scale. So the un what they discover is the unfair advantage of a large company is they, once it gets to that point, they can pull levers that a startup could never afford to buy. You could move a trillion dollars of treasury assets to a, a new model, which doesn't exist available. So the valuing of that new to big, that valuing of the capability to go from zero to 50 million has to be at a top line basis that's rewarded and paid for. I'll, I'll share this one thing, and I won't name the company, but I was in front of a board you know, four months ago in another country, a uh, big board. And we presented these portfolios of what we had accomplished for the CEO the last two or three years. And the only question, the only question the board asked was, how are we incentivizing these people so they never leave? Literally. It was like, how are we paying them as much as a venture capitalist would pay an entrepreneur to build that value for us so they never leave? That's all I want to talk about was incentives. Because you always pay for what you always get what you pay for. So I think this is, we're on the vanguard of, an EIR entrepreneur as a career for a big company with the unfair advantages and a lot of the downside being taken out of the machine for the talent that wants to go build on those platforms. Dave, I just want to add too, because yeah. I think this is an important as part of like that year two, year three. I mean, when we started these growth boards yeah. and we started to think about uncovering the ideas throughout the company, we were doing it based on lines of business. Yeah. And that in of itself, although exciting, created and reinforced some of the constructs in our company that were actually deterring yeah, us from share, moving quickly. Right? Because our customer doesn't look at cards, banking, mortgages, et cetera, it looks at a relationship. And so part of innovating is innovating on the models that you put in place. So is, you know, 18 months later, we said like, is there even a better way of doing this? And so we started to move more towards theme-based innovation. Mm -hmm. And we have seen, I mean, rapid acceleration, like forex acceleration on ideas. We've seen a fourth of the cost that you spend because you're making decisions daily versus, you know, every kind of three months. And, and I just add that because I think part of it, you get so stuck in, well, this is what innovating is about, and so therefore we're going to continue to do it, when the reality is, is like, this clock cycles are less than a year now. That's fascinating. Thank you all so much for sharing your wisdom, and thank you for your questions. Come back in 10 minutes to ask more questions to Eric Reese.